The following is a message from Christ the King Presbyterian Church in Roanoke, Virginia. For more information about the ministry of Christ the King, please visit us at ctkroanoke.org. Well, again, good morning. Uh, it's good to be with you. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is Penny, and I'm the senior pastor here. And uh, it is good to be with you. Uh, if you are a guest or a visitor, we're glad that you're with us and uh, glad that you would come and, and be with us as we uh, come and open God's Word. And, and we come to God's Word each and every week because uh, we recognize that there are many words that we hear throughout the week, right? There are many words that are spoken to us in our world, right? Things that, that tell us about uh, what we are to believe about the world, what we are to believe about ourselves, how we are to think about the things of this world. And, and there are many competing words that we hear, many competing voices, all vying for our attention and our affection. And so that's why it's important for us to return to God's word, because as Christians, we believe that the most important word that we can hear and the most important word we can consider is the one that God gives us in his very word. In the scriptures. And so we come to it each and every week. And so this week we come to a portion of his word that's found in Joshua chapter 10. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to Joshua 10. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles in the chairs in front of you. And we're, we'll also project the passage on the screens. But if you were with us a few weeks ago, then maybe you remember I said that, that what I hope that we will ultimately take away from our time in Joshua uh, you know, apart from Jericho, apart from I, apart from uh, Rahab, apart from these various stories, that, that I hope that the one thing we would end up taking away is God is faithful. And that we have seen that time and again, right? God's faithfulness again and again and again. We've seen it through the first nine chapters, and we're going to see it again this morning because, because this morning's passage, following off of Joshua 9, is, is still dealing with the Gibeonite people, so you remember last week, if you were with us, the Gibeonites, they're these people in the land, and they had heard all that God had done through the people of God. And so they come to Israel, and through deceptive means, they coax Israel into entering into a covenant of peace with them. And we might have thought, well, okay, that, that was an interesting story. We're done with the Gibeonites. Let's keep moving further into the land, right? Because there's more people in the land that Israel will engage with. But, but their story continues, because Gideon, Gibeon this morning, is, is in trouble. They're in need. And in their trouble and in their need, what we're going to see is God is faithful. He is faithful to the word that he has spoken. He is faithful to the promises that have been made. So let's go ahead and read Joshua 10. We'll read the first 26 verses of the passage. As soon as Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai and had devoted to destruction, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, he feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai and all its men were warriors. So Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Haham, king of Hebron, to Piram, king of Jarmuth, to Japhiah, king of Lachish, and to Debir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me, and let us strike Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the people of Israel. 
Then the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon, gathered their forces and went up with all their armies and encamped against Gibeon and made war against it. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp in Gilgal, saying, Do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came, up them, came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. And the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon and chased them by the way of the ascent of Beth Haran and struck them as far as Azekah and Mekedah. And as they fled before Israel, while they were going down the ascent of Beth Haran, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord God gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jashar? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for, for about a whole day. There, was, there has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. So Joshua returned, and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. These five kings fled and hid themselves in the cave of Machedah, and it was told to Joshua, the five kings have been found hidden in the cave at Machedah. And Joshua said, Roll large stones against the mouth of the cave and set men by it to guard them. But do not stay there yourselves. Pursue your enemies, attack their rear guard. Do not let them enter their cities, for the Lord your God has given them into your hand. When Joshua, said, Joshua and the sons of Israel had finished striking them with a great blow until they were wiped out, and when the remnant that remained of them had entered into the fortified cities, then all the people returned safe to Joshua in the camp at Machedah. Not a man moved his tongue against any of the people of Israel. Then Joshua said, Open the mouth of the cave and bring those five kings out to me from the cave. And they did so, and brought those five kings out to him from the cave, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon. And when they brought those kings out to Joshua, Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with him, Come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. Then they came near and put their feet on their necks, and Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. And afterwards Joshua struck them and put them to death, and he hanged them on five trees, and they hung on the trees until evening. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we... We ask that you would help us as we come to your word. 
Father, uh, we, we read your word, and uh, sometimes we can be confused, sometimes dismayed, sometimes uh, unsure. And so we pray that in this time that you would give us clarity, that you would help us to see, that you would help us to hear. Father, be with me. Allow my words to honor you and glorify you. Be with us all. Let us be attentive to your word. And by your spirit, we pray that you would move and work. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, just the other day, I uh, went into our family room, the room where we watch uh, sports, movies, TV, and whatnot, and, and Cole was sitting there by himself, and the TV was on, and, and like a good son, he was watching The Return of the King. Uh, that's the Lord of the Rings. And, and like a good son, he was watching the extended version, because who doesn't want four hours of orcs and dwarves and, and elves? And and so as he was watching this uh, movie, I, I was reminded of a scene in, in The Lord of the Rings at the end of The Return of the King. You remember, if you've watched the movies, if you've read the books, that, that near the end, there's a great battle outside the gates of Minas Tirith. Minas Tirith is the great white city in the land of Gondor. And there's a great battle that takes place. The, the enemy soldiers and the orcs and, and the men of war, they are running. They are moving towards Minas Tirith, and they're ready to go to war to battle. Now, the inhabitants of Minas Tirith, this great city, this city that is now crumbling, they're afraid. They're terrified because they know that they cannot withstand the onslaught of the enemy. They know that they will lose the battle. They are weak and scared. They're afraid and alone. They know that defeat will come. Well, in the movie, as, as this is a building, as the, the enemy is moving towards the city, Pippin, who happens to be one of the hobbits that's in uh, the land of Gondor, in the city of Minas Tirith, he climbs up this great tower and he takes oil and he pours it over this pile of wood and he lights it on fire and the beacon of Gondor is lit. And you look off into the distance at to, the, to the next mountaintop and, and all of a sudden fire ignites on the top of that mountain and you look a little further and there's more fire and more fire and it starts this chain reaction of beacon after beacon after beacon being lit. For hundreds of miles from the, from the land of Gondor all the way to the land of Rohan, these beacons keep being lit again and again and again. And when it finally is lit just outside of the land of Rohan, the, the men who see it come running into the king's chambers and declare the, the beacons are lit. Gondor calls for aid. Gondor is in need. You see, Gondor, in that moment, by lighting those beacons, they are calling for help. They are calling upon those who had sworn an ancient oath to them. It's kind of like what the Gibeonites are doing in our passage, isn't it? You see, the other nations of the land, they've heard about what God has done, how God has defeated the Egyptians, how God has defeated Jericho, has, he has defeated the city of Ai. They've heard of all that God has done, but they've also heard that Gibeon is aligned themselves with Israel. And so these five kings come together and they decide to make war against Gibeon. Gibeon is in need of help. But they don't light a beacon. They go with their word to Joshua. They send word to him in verse 6, Come up to us quickly 
and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. You see, Gibeon is calling Israel to make good on their oath. As Gondor called for help to Rohan, as the king got word that Gondor was in need, the king paused for a moment. Because in, in responding to Gondor, the king knew that this would mean battle. He knew it would mean a long ride. He knew it would mean war and death. And so he had to ponder, he had to consider, would he make good on his oath? His oath that was ancient. Gondor calls for aid, and then the king of Rohan, he declares, and Rohan will answer. It's this amazing scene where all the warriors, where all the soldiers mount on their horses, and they're ready to ride. And the general of Rohan declares, oaths have been taken, now fulfill them all. And that's what we hear Israel declaring. That Israel will be faithful to their oath. Right? We hear it in verse 7. Joshua went up from Gilgal. He and all the people of war with him and all the mighty men of valor. They're going to war. Now, I have to imagine... I have to imagine that when uh, Joshua first entered into this covenant of peace with, with the Gibeonites, that, that after the peace had been declared, after the covenant had been made, I, I'm sure he was sitting there thinking, you know, okay, it wasn't the best way to go about this. I wish they would have just come and been honest. But, but regardless, you know, it, it's maybe going to work out to our advantage because it means one less city to go to war against. It means that we can dwell in peace together. We have this alliance, right? We'll run up against each other. But, you know, like, what could go wrong? It's kind of like the U.S. and Canada, right? Like, we're going to be good buddies here. We're going to be friends, right? They won't invade us, right? I know we're nervous about Canada, but, but you know, they're not going to invade us, and we won't invade them, and we'll just be good buddies, kind of like, you know, the Gibeonites in Israel, and I imagine Gibeon was probably thinking, you know, now that we've aligned ourselves with Israel, that means no more war. It means that peace has come. And yet there are still enemies. There's still enemies. No, it's not Israel that's seeking to make war against Gibeon, but, but there are enemies nonetheless. And y'all, this is important to remember. It's important for us to remember because it's very easy, I think, for us as followers of Jesus, to, to cling to the fact that there is peace between us and God. And there is, right? Every single Sunday, later in the service, we're going to say it, right? I'm going to say, the peace of Christ be with you, and you're going to say back, and also with you, right? We're going to declare it to one another. And that, that declaration is just affirming what we know to be true, that we have peace with the Father, that there was once enmity between us and God, but now because of Jesus, there's peace, and it's easy for us to think, well, if we have peace with God, then who can be against us, right? Our life is just going to be full of peace and ease, right? And we forget that there are still enemies. And the Bible speaks of these enemies. It calls them the world, the flesh, and the devil. These enemies that are still waging war against us. Yes, we have peace with God, and yet in this world, there are still battles that are fought. There are enemies out there, and there are enemies right in here. 
These enemies are very real. And they're very real for Gibeon. They have peace with God's people, but there is still war in the world. And so they invoke the vow that has been made. Now listen, you make a vow or an oath or a promise, you make it in a time of peace. You make it in a time of peace, but you don't make it for the sake of peace. You make an oath or a promise or a vow for when difficulty arises. Right? I mean, think about a wedding vow. Right? A wedding vow. Uh, I've done countless weddings now, and, and we always use the same vows because they're the best ones to use. Like, because they're the right ones to use, because they're accounting for every situation, right? In joy and in sorrow, right? In, in wealth and in poverty, in sickness and in health, right? In, in, in good times and in bad. But it's in good times that you're not leaning on the vows, right? Like when you're sitting around the table and everybody's laughing and it's a good time, like you're not going, man, I'm so glad I took that vow so I could persevere through this, Right? <laughs> No, it's times of difficulty and struggle when you lean on those vows. Relational strife, when arguments ensue, when diagnosis comes, and when you're in a hospital waiting room. It's in those times that you're leaning on those vows, isn't it? When those vows and those oaths that we make become very real, Gibeon had peace with Israel, but in time of battle, they are calling on Israel to fulfill their vow, to fulfill their oath. And Israel's going to, because their word is sacred. Now, they understand to keep their vow, to keep their oath, means that they will put their life on the line, and yet, they're going to do that very thing. They are going to fulfill and be faithful to their vow. They're going to be faithful to their oath, faithful to their word. But more importantly than Israel being faithful to their word, God is faithful to his word. That's the other thing we see in our passage. Joshua musters the troops and God declares to him in verse 8, Do not fear for them. Do not fear them. For I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. There's that phrase. We've heard it a number of times, right? Do not fear. Joshua, don't fear. And remember, why is it that Joshua, why is it that Israel doesn't have to fear? It's not because of their strength. It's not because of their ability. It's not because of their power. It's not because they are so faithful. But why? Do not fear because God is with you. Because God is not going to leave his people because God will battle for his people. And that's what we see him do, right? In verses 12 and 13, Joshua speaks to the Lord. Okay, so he learned from last week, right? Remember last week, Joshua didn't consult with the Lord. Now he's consulting. So that's good, you know, maturing. Um, Verse 12, at that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. So God is going to war on behalf of his people, but you see how he's doing it. Now, I will have to say, there, there are a number of ways of trying to interpret this passage in many ways that uh, commentators have. Faithful, God-believing, Bible-loving commentators interpret this differently. 
There are a few different ways we can think about it. The first is um, that God literally stopped the sun. So the earth stopped rotating on its axis, and whatever complications that might cause in the world, God constrained them, okay? Now, let me just say, uh, there is no question in my mind that the Lord could do that. I have no doubt, right? I mean, the God who created the heavens and the earth and all that they contained, and he did by the very word of his power, or the God who's, who separated the Red Sea or like this, Israel marched all night long, Panic comes upon their enemies, and so Joshua asked the Lord, keep it dark. Keep it dark so we can go into battle. Sun, be silent. It's a reference to radiance, not motion. A third way is to just see it as simply an eclipse that took place. Another is that it's metaphorical. When Joshua says there has been no day like it or since, that this is simply a way of saying God did a great action. Now, regardless of how you want to read it, whether God literally stopped the sun, whether he brought darkness upon the land, whether it's simply a metaphor or an eclipse or something else, the point of the passage actually isn't the miracle. The point of the passage is that God battled for his people. That God defended his people. In verse 10, he throws the enemies into panic. In verse 11, he sent stones from heaven, a hailstorm that killed more people than the swords of Israel. In verse 14, he heeded Joshua's voice and he fought for them. You see, that's the point. God is faithful to defend his people. God is faithful to protect his people. And he shows his faithfulness by going to battle for his people. And the truth is, is that might be the most unsettling part for some of us of the entire passage. That God goes to war? And if it's, if it's not unsettling for you, it is certainly unsettling for someone you know. Someone who looks at this and goes, how, how, how can God command this? These chapters of conquest? Right? It can be unsettling to some degree because... Because we think of and we emphasize that God is a God of peace and of love and of mercy and of forgiveness and of grace. And he is all of those things. There is no question. God has brought peace through his son. But remember what I said earlier. Though there is peace, there are still enemies. The world and the flesh and the devil. And these enemies... They have no interest in peace. They are still enemies. They want us to give ourselves to them, and they promise peace, but they simply bring enmity and destruction. And that's what the kings of the land were doing. That's what the kings of the land were doing, and the kings of our world are doing the same. Now, of course, I'm using that language of king metaphorically because we're Americans, and we, we don't want anything to do with kings. <laughs> But there are kings in our lives, like the king of beauty, the king of beauty that says that your value and your worth is only determined by how you look or what size your body takes. But we all know what happens to the king of beauty, right? It discards us. 
Because over time, every single one of us, we're going to start to have wrinkles and we're going to start to get a little chubbier and we're going to stop fitting into those perfect sizes and the world will say we are no longer beautiful. Or what about the king of intellect? The king of intellect that says that, that your value and your worth, it's determined by how much you know and how quickly and how accurately you can articulate the things that you know. But, but what happens? Well, that king discards us too, doesn't it? Because our minds begin to slow and we start to forget. Or what about the kings of political parties and ideologies that want your 100% allegiance and if there's any sort of nuance in your understanding or any sort of questioning, then they discard you and cancel you. You see, the kings of this world, they promise peace. But they only want to use you and discard you when they're done. They're battling for our hearts and our minds and our souls. They are doing those very things. And that's why we need God to fight. That's why we need God to battle. That when he fights and he makes war, whether it be in Joshua or in our day on our behalf, he's fighting for the well-being of his people. He's defending them and caring for them. In this instance, think about it. Gibeon didn't provoke this aggression from the five kings. He didn't set up a standing army outside the city walls. They attacked him. They attacked Gibeon. And so God is defending them. He is enacting justice. But God's justice isn't simply regarding self-defense. It's justice against sin. God commands Israel to go to war because of sin in the land. We can see it in Genesis 15 and Deuteronomy 9 and Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 19. There, God describes the immorality of the land, of the inhabitants of the land. And we know God can't abide sin and iniquity. And so it's actually unjust. It would be wrong for God to ignore the sin. In fact, God says to Israel, if you become like them, then you will face this judgment as well. It would be wrong for God to ignore sin and wickedness, and we don't want him to. We don't want him to ignore it, do we? I mean, the sin and the evil and the horror and the wickedness of this world, don't we want justice? Don't we want an end to those sorts of things? I mean, what kind of a God would he be if he ignored and passed over evil and wickedness and injustice? Y'all, that's not a God I would want to follow. That's not a God that would promise peace or could it deliver on peace. No, we need him to be just. And by making war, God is bringing justice in this passage through his people. Now, let me just say, because I know that probably there are questions in your minds about this. And, and I know there are because some of you have asked me this very question. So, so let me just say from, from you know, right, right now, let me just declare that this is a particular time and in a particular moment. That God's people, God's people are no longer constrained by a single nation. We are no longer associated simply by one country or one nationality. The kingdom of God spreads into all the earth. And so we don't see God continuing to use 
his people in this way. Old Testament Israel is not the same as present-day Israel. They're not the same. God is not calling on his people to bring the sword in this way any longer. And so we shouldn't use these passages as an excuse or a rationale for us going to war. It was at a particular time and in a particular moment. No nation any longer takes the mantle, God's people. God's people extend beyond nationality and extend beyond nation. His kingdom fills all the earth. The conquest in Joshua is a unique historical event. But y'all, that doesn't mean that God has stopped being faithful. Just because it was unique and particular doesn't mean that God has stopped being faithful. His faithfulness continues today. His faithfulness continues in the way that God ultimately deals with injustice and the way in which he ultimately brings peace actually isn't through the sword, it's through sacrifice. Because God dealt ultimately with sin by bringing judgment on Jesus. In Galatians chapter 3, we're told that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on the tree. The kings of the land, those five kings of the nations, they hung on the tree and they were buried and they were dead. And they were so, they were judged because of their sin. But Jesus hung on the tree. He was crucified on the cross. He died and was buried and he was judged not for his sin, but for our sin. You see, Christ had no sin to be judged by. He wasn't like these other kings. What's fascinating, what's interesting is way back in verse 1, that king that we first come in contact with, Adonai Zedek. His name, his title, means Lord of Righteousness. But he was not the righteous king. And he was not the sinless one. No, he was the one who needed justice to be brought upon him. But Christ, Jesus is the just king. He is the righteous Lord. He is the triumphant king. And we see his triumph not only in his resurrection, but we hear of his triumph in the promised future return. Because God has promised by his word that there is a day coming when Jesus will return and the righteous Lord, the righteous king, the triumphant one, he will do away with injustice and he will make, make an end to war and he will bring peace and he will do it because he is the one who has given his life, who has died and risen again and is returning. He will bring peace. You see, friends, God is faithful. He was faithful to Gibeon, and he was faithful to Israel, and he is faithful to us. Through Christ, the King. Through Christ, the faithful one. Through Christ, the Lord of righteousness. He will bring peace. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we ask, Father, that you would help us to rest in you and to turn to you to uh, depend upon you. Father, we are thankful that you do not ignore sin and injustice, but instead that you bring an end to it through Jesus. And so we thank you, Lord Jesus, 
that you took our sin upon yourself, that you gave of your life, that you, our just king, is the triumphant king who will bring peace. Help us to rest and depend upon you. And we pray all this in Christ's name. And God's people said together, amen.